0: My name is Brent Royak, and I am a, a professor at Concordia University, Nebraska, and I'm a physics prof, and I'm a dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, a lifelong Lutheran teacher. I began my ministry at uh, Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois. Um, my wife is here, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. My, we have four kids, and uh, we're having a celebration summer for the Royak family because I had two daughters get married within the last four weeks. Thank you, thank you. Father of the Bride, and now uh, NYG sectional presenter, I'm putting on more hats all the time. I'm so excited to talk to you today about uh, how science reveals the glory of God. Uh, I'm, uh, I've called this sectional Broadening the Heavens, How Science Declares the Glory of God. And uh, I wanna kind of unpack that title. I was trying to be a little bit clever in, in how I named this, and uh, we're going we're gonna to take a, uh, a jaunt through uh, Psalm 19 a little bit and talk some theology. We're going to get into uh, some of the philosophy of science this morning, uh, uh, some cool demos that hopefully kind of mess with your sense of uh, awe and wonder to help us uh, be dazzled and see the glory of God through science, a small amount of vector calculus Okay, just a small amount, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I want to show you, this is a slide that I used uh, just in the spring semester at the beginning of my introductory physics course at Concordia, and as a Christian university, I think it's really important for me to kind of give a context when I begin teaching science. And I talk to them a little bit, you see the title is, Why Should a Christian Want to Learn About Science? And uh, I've, I've messed around with this uh, over the years and, and, and have a lot of different faith integration ideas that I've used. Uh, but the, the first one is always, we, we talk about how, well, nature is sometimes referred to as, as God's other book. The first book is the Bible, but the second book is nature because, you know, natural theology, we learn about God through His creation. And so science is a way that we systematically study that. And I've always put Psalm 19.1 there. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Okay? Uh, here's the full psalm. And, and I want to kind of unpack this, all right? So really, big focus just on the first verse. What does that mean that the heavens declare the glory of God? Does, does an image come to your mind when you think of the heavens declaring the glory of God? Have you been out far, far from the city lights in a very desolate, dark place and been dazzled when you look up at the night sky? That is something that city dwellers almost never see. But if you go out into a dark, rural area, it's amazing. It seems like there's millions of stars. you know how many stars you can see when you look up in the sky? Not as many as you think. Uh, The official census count when you use a technical definition of brightness, which of course applies to the average human, there's 9,096, less than 10,000 stars that you can see surrounding the globe. So if you're only looking up at a hemisphere, you can only see half of those. So it's not as many as you'd think, but it's still dazzling and glorious. And you see, you see the Milky Way, and it kind of appears as these light smudges that aren't individually resolvable stars, but when you first see that Milky Way, you say, oh, now I see why they call it the Milky Way, right? Yeah, here's a, uh, a recent newspaper article uh, from the Daily Mail in London. Just one in 50 people can see stars as nature intended because the, the night skies are being masked under a veil of light pollution, right? Okay, so if you get out far into the, in the dark night, you, you see all kinds of things, right? And you see the shooting stars, and maybe if you stay out for a while, you get some sensitivity for their motion. And this, this crazy uh, way that they rotate around the North Star, right? Here, this time-lapse photo kind of reveals that. Or maybe you've seen the Aurora Borealis. This, this is a super speeded-up version of that. Um, and you don't see it moving this quick, but it's kind of shimmery. And as you're staring at it, it changes very slowly. And you say, wow, it's changed now. We look up in the sky and we we find p- pictures, right? Traditionally, all the constellations uh, are, are ways that people have connected the dots and the stars and seen figures, uh, great Orion. And when you, when you ponder how that happens, it's really pretty mind-blowing because those stars that appear to us kind of two-dimensionally against a backdrop of sky are really three-dimensional objects that are just dis- different distances away from us. And so we're tracing out this Three-dimensional sphere into something that we we connect the dots with and see pictures. It's it's glorious, right? That's the heavens revealing the glory of God because it is awesome and wonderful to see. Uh, there's a anybody have the the smartphone app Sky Guide? This is a four-dollar app uh, available for Android or iOS, and it is. Uh, uh, really worth $4, you guys. You just take your phone, and you run it, and it's location aware, and you hold it up in front of your face, and it will show you what you're seeing. This is a screen cap that I just made on my iPhone that shows what you see, and they, they help you locate the constellations and the names of the stars, and this is the summer triangle that I wanted to show you now. That's a fun thing to see with these three very, very bright stars. Uh, Betelgeuse is, is very, very red. I've pointed out to so many people, and I say, look, there's Betelgeuse in uh, Orion. And they say, which one? The red one. The red one? Some stars are red? I say, yes, look at that. It's as red as blood. Can you see that? You, you Some people aren't aware that stars have different colors that you can see with your eyes, right? It's glorious. It's revealing God's glory. Anybody uh, get to see the, the tot- total eclipse of 2017? Okay, so here's, here's a time lapse that was shot from our campus because uh, we could not believe our good fortune that we were in the path of totality and we tried to get as many people to come to our campus from outside the path to see it. And I was, I, we, you know, there were some, some uh, schools and principals who said, oh yeah, yeah, we'll be there. And some said, yeah, well, we're, we have a, a nice partial eclipse. As, no, 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 no. Partial is not total. You need to be in the path. Please, come, come to our stadium. So we had 4,000 people there, and uh, this is the second largest group I've ever spoken to, I think, we, because I was on the mic doing play-by-play for an eclipse. So that, that, was, that was pretty cool. All right, so back to the psalm. Here, here's how I'm, I'm playing with the words here. I, I called my talk Broadening the Heavens broadening the heavens. So see what I've put in red. Let's broaden the heavens to not just think about the night sky, which in itself is already pretty darn glorious. But we're going to broaden the heavens to include all the ways that we can study nature with our senses. And when one studies nature with their senses, we have humanity has developed a god-given tool for doing that in the best systematic way possible, yes? And it's called science. So I think science is a way that we can see God's glory, okay? Now, what about the word glory? Here's here's just one of those montages, you know, go do a Bing image search for the word glory and what do you see? These are images that people thought Artistically or aesthetically were glorious in some way, right? What do they have in common? We, we respond visually with our, with our eyes to scenes that inspire awe and wonder, right? And that, that is connected to the word glory, right? Okay. Now, when you look at the word glory in the Bible, you have to keep in mind it's really used two different ways. In, in one common sense, it's something you do. Lord, we glorify your name. We we relish, we revel in our our knowledge of our Creator. We praise Him. Glorify means to praise, yes. But it's also God's attribute. You remember how Moses wanted to see God's glory? He said, Oh no, Moses, you can't handle that. I'm gonna walk past you and look at let you just glance at my back while I have you hidden away so you, you're protected. And it was still so dazzling that he could barely survive seeing God's glory, right? So glory, now, I'm, I'm no theologian, but I've, I've seen several references that actually specifically state that God's glory is a way that we can perceive him with our senses, right? And it has this, this emotional connection that is something that is just part of our, our physical world but it also has a spiritual connection too, right? So that is the perspective I like to take as a physicist and as a science teacher to try to help my students see God's glory in science. Because when you're learning science, there are a lot of times where you have those aha moments and you say, oh, that's pretty cool, or wow, that's surprising, right? And when I, when I point those out to my classes, I like to say, we're having a Psalm 19 moment, aren't we? Because we, as Christians, see that this reveals God's glory. All right? Now, time to get a little philosophical. I want to to, uh, have kind of a system of working my way through a couple different examples of, of how we can see God's glory through science. And I want to go back to the old question of scientific method, the philosophy of science. Okay? Here is a graphic that kind of shows a process that many of you may see as kind of familiar, where uh, there's, there's a certain story that you sometimes get in, in you know, science classes where si- science is kind of defined by this process, where we go from hypothesis to theory to law, right? And this kind of helps us understand what those words mean. Because as we all know, a hi- hypothesis is a educated guess, okay? And, uh, Uh, A lot of science teachers, I know, find that very frustrating because that is not a very good definition. Uh, Hypothesis is a little bit confusing because it really means two different things. Uh, it's, It's actually a product of theory. Once a scientist has a theory in hand, it will make predictions. So a hypothesis is a prediction that's generated by a theory, but it's also a tentative explanation right? In a a more simple experimental sense, if you're trying to just solve a problem. You may have a hypothesis, which is what you think the answer to the question might be, and then we can test it. So I'm a little down on hypotheses, because they, they contribute to this confusion. This is a misconception, because this leads to the idea that you go from uncertainty to certainty in science. So a hypothesis, if it's supported by experiment, oh, well, now it graduated up and we can call it a theory, right? But a theory is still kind of uncertain. It's more certain than a hypothesis, less certain than a law. And then through more experimentation and testing, perhaps a theory will graduate and walk across the stage, will hand it a diploma and will say, congratulations, you are now a law of nature, okay? That is absolutely false. That is absolutely false. That is not what those words mean. Let me put a big X to this. <laughs> so you. Get the emphasis. Here's a a far better sequence to understand the processes of science in the context of what the words law and theory mean, okay? What you start with is your observation, your data. Data is something in which we use our senses to make a measurement about the world. What we're collecting could be called facts, okay? And they have to be done with the senses because that is the domain of science. When scientists start to move outside the domain of their senses and their data, that's when we get in trouble because they start to believe things and have biases applied. And it's hard for humans not to do that. But scientists have a responsibility to stick with the data, right? Okay. Law is what comes next. Because a law, this is my favorite part, okay? Because a law is just a pattern that we find in our data because the world, my friends, is full of patterns. It's full of order that is just there to be discovered. So when, when we discover a big law, we might call it Newton's laws of Motion. Everybody's heard of those. You've re- learned about Boyle's Law, right? PV equals P prime V prime in tem- chemistry, Charles' Law. So those were not invented by Boyle and Charles and Newton. They were discovered by them. Who invented Boyle's law? God. God makes laws, okay? And they are not proven, they just are patterns that emerge from our observations. They don't have to be proven because they're just there to be seen. If they're not good laws, that means we did not do our observations correctly, okay? And of course, you know, Things get complicated in the real world, and, and when you're working with a very, very subtle pattern uh, at the edge of our instrumentation, it may be possible that you're, you're uncertain whether the pattern is really there. You know what I mean? But the ones with names on them, these, they, they just always work. It, it's, it doesn't even have to be that complicated, right? What happens when you drop something? It falls. Well, that's a pattern, right? That's a law. The law of falling. When you drop things, they fall. And then we could go on and get more complicated and and put numbers on it with Newton's law of gravity. That's a law too, right? The force of, of attraction between any two masses is g m1 m2 over d squared, right? Learned that in science class. Okay, that leads then to the more difficult category, theory. Theory is a more complicated thing because this is a model that scientists invent within their minds to try to make sense of the patterns they see, okay? So we, we stare up at the night sky and we see how the stars move from, during the night and from night to night, and we see the planets wandering among them. We'll talk about that a little more later. Um, what's the theory to explain that, right? Well, you all know that we used to have the geocentric model where we thought everything revolved around the Earth. And the planets were in different uh, orbits than the stars were. And that's what made them move differently. But then, after years and years of research and systematic study and the application of mathematics, we said, no, it makes more sense to see the solar system as a big star at the center with the planets all going around. And Earth is one of the planets revolving around the sun. That's a better model for understanding. Okay? So, in a sense, God makes laws but man makes theories, okay? Theories are always a model in a certain sense. Some of them are so concrete that you can't just say, yeah, is this really a model anymore? Doesn't the Earth really go around the sun? Yeah, it kind of really does, but it's, it's the picture that we have in our mind based on all of our measurements. You, you get what I'm saying? So stay away from the hypothesis theory law myth. Because then you just won't know what those words mean when scientists use them, okay? Law and theory. And I want to give a few examples where we're going to look at some real-world science to, to, help you, to help reinforce this idea that we can have God's glory revealed to us through science. And I want to go through some glorious data and some glorious laws and some glorious theories, okay, to kind of reinforce and uh, this will, okay. I'm excited to have a full room here. I didn't know who was going to show up. So a lot of you are just big science fans. You know, you just can't wait until the summers ended. And you had to come get a fix of science, right? We got some big science fans here. Okay, some of you are motivated because, what, what, how can you possibly? make a connection between science and religion, right? At a youth gathering, we got the curious theological aspect. Okay, we have anybody who just hates science and just came here to heckle me? Okay, thank you for being honest. All right, my nephew. Um, (laughs) uh, All right, I'll try to win you over, okay? Um, So let's start with some glorious data. And I I want to show you some data that's very ordinary and homely that came from my daughter's eighth grade science project, okay? And I just want to show you her data because I think it reveals God's glory. And I want you to learn to think that way with me because I think it's a good way to study science as a Christian. All right, here we go. My daughter's science project started and was inspired by an XKCD cartoon. Now I know, sorry, didn't know the room was going to be this long, (laughs) but what we have here is a cartoon that says words I used to refer to a pet over the years that I live with. And here's what the words are. In the first year, it fits pretty well inside the pet's name, but it's drifting out into the region of words related to the pet, coherent words of any kind, right? And so first year, yeah, mostly calling my pet by their name. Second year, I'm kind of drifting away to words related to the pet. And third year, fourth year, you just, what do you call your pet, right? Okay, so I I showed this to my daughter and I said, hey, I think this is a good idea for a science project. Let's run an online survey and find a bunch of pet users to take our survey and tell us what their pet's name is and we'll capture all kinds of data about the pet's age and the type of pet and the owner's age and all that sort of thing. And then we're gonna have them tell us their pet name and then list the nicknames they use for the pet. Okay, and so we collected a lot of data, because Anna went to the pet subreddit, okay, and posted it, and she was this cute little eighth grader, you know, saying, could you help me with my science project, and there's a lot of eyeballs on the pet subreddit, right, and so she got 1,086 responses. All right, yes, you're impressed, that's good, okay. And then I, I said, okay, Anna, let me teach you how to make graphs in Excel. I want you to graph everything you can think of, okay? And so here's a, here's a pie chart showing the types of pets. And here you have cats and dogs, <laughs> right? Mostly cats and dogs. And then we have some slices for bird, fish, reptile, hamster, and other, okay? Uh, our survey system captured their location, so we mapped it or 10,000 respondents there they are across the United States there they are across the world okay there we go now she graphed some comparisons average number of nicknames for pet by gender of owner female pet owners almost four nicknames per pet okay and they told us all nicknames and the and the males were down around 2.5 okay now, I told you I'm not a big fan of hypotheses. One, one reason I've always not liked hypotheses is because I, have, I had four children, they each did two grade school science projects. Each time they would say, dad, you have ideas? I said, oh yes, I have, I, I have ideas, I'm a science teacher. But you are not going to win the science project, I'm sorry. Because all I care about is that it's very clever. <laughs> And I have no idea what the hypothesis is going to be. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that way. What should the hypothesis be when you collect pet nicknames? Well, Anna decided to, to uh, make an educated guess that females would have more nicknames than males. And she was right. So her hypothesis was supported. For Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, the pet's gender, this looks big, but it's not. It's 3.5 to 3.7 in favor of females. Okay. Here's by animal type and the first two are dogs and cats, neck and neck. Reptiles and amphibians were very close, <laughs> okay? So if you have a snake, uh, you tend to have more nicknames than if you have a fish, which is the low one, but each fish had on the average a couple nicknames, by the way, right? Okay, this is a biased sample, it's the pet subreddit. These people are crazy about their pets, okay? This cannot be generalized to the, the, norm, the regular population of the United States. Um, Average nicknames by age. So our our sample under 13, just call their pets by their name. And there weren't too many of those those younger respondents. And we have a a spike here at 26 to 34. I don't know if you can see too much of a pattern here. And then average nicknames by years the pet has been owned. And there's very few pets that were owned 18 plus years, but they tended to have on the average five nicknames or more, okay? And Anna made an infographic. uh, she, she uh, let everyone know her top three favorite names, Duchess Charlotte of Derpington, Chairman Meow, and Kitty Kitty Bang Bang. Those were her favorite, okay? And then uh, a little in- information about the one with the most nicknames. There was a pet owner of Opa the cat who listed 61 nicknames for Opa. Okay? That's what we call an outlier. Okay, now this is is just data people, but it's interesting. Is it glorious? Okay, let me show you something I think is even more impressive. We made a word cloud of all the names of the pets. Okay, I'm about to reveal a word cloud and the biggest name on there is the most common name for a pet with our 10,000 respondents. And you all can maybe guess, what do you think the most common pet name is? Buddy. Okay, And look at this, it's a, it's a constellation of data. I love this way of representing our, our experimental results. Buddy's the biggest. We have a big Lucy, we have a big Jack. Molly, Charlie, Maverick, Tigger, you can see with your eyes what the most common pet names are. Lot of gizmos. Do you young people know what gizmo comes from? Okay, Gremlins movie. Now, isn't that glorious? Isn't that beautiful to have that presented? Okay, but we can't stop. We have to keep going. Now, we made a word cloud of all the nicknames. We had a lot more nicknames than we had names, right? There were 61 nicknames for Opa. So what's the most common nickname? Baby, right? Isn't that what you, isn't that what you call your cat? First of all, let me tell you, when when Anna was uh, uh, sprucing up her presentation and getting it ready with all the graphics, that slide took far longer than any other. What, why? All all we had to do was dump it into a word cloud generator. No, no, there was editing involved. She had to pour through thousands of nicknames to remove all the cuss words. Okay? You can guess. You can guess. They're terms of endearment, right? But sometimes they're a little vulgar. And we were so scared that we were going to miss one. <laughs> and she went through the list, and I went through the list, and she went through the list. And we think we got them cleaned up, okay? Now, if you want to see, see that graphic, you can go to a little website I created just so Anna could share her data back to the pet subreddit. And we put her little right up on there, but I made, I put that graphic in super high res if you want to go look at it, okay? Now, my last name is Royuk, R-O-Y-U-K. I own the domain Royuk.com, so take note if you're curious, go to pets.royuk.com, and that is Anna's summary page, and you can drown in the data of the pet (coughs) nicknames, all right? It's beautiful. Okay, now, am I going too far saying that this is glorious. Because you guys were engaged when I put that up there. I I lost you for a minute, right? We were talking about what we were seeing. We were curious. We wanted to know what the answer was, right? That is the primary driver for the, the vocation of a scientist. We are curious, curious people. And we want to know about the world. And from a Psalm 19 perspective, we are experiencing God's glory because it's his creation he created this order right in all the craziness of what we call our pets there's some beautiful order there and and babies on top (laughs) of the pyramid right okay so that's that's glorious data all right let's shift gears entirely to a different type of data I want to look at the science of color a little bit okay so here we go I think the data, when you're studying the science of color, is fascinating because the scientific tools we use to model and understand color reveal things about what we're seeing that are, in some ways, invisible and, in some ways, enhance our pleasure at what we are seeing. And it's a very visual thing, right? when we see a rainbow, we're excited. It's like, oh, a rainbow. Let's go stare at the rainbow. Let's try to take a picture of it, right? So here's a good picture of a rainbow. I've tried taking some pictures of a rainbow. This one is uh, uh, the pot of gold at the end of my house there on Seward Street, okay? And it's a double. And you notice how the bright inner rainbow, it's always red on the outside. And and the double is is not too prominent, but it's visible there. Uh, Next time you see a double rainbow, please take note, it's always reversed, right? So the, the outer rainbow is always inverted red on the inside. And you know we understand why that is. Google it and you'll, you can find some diagrams. It's, uh, it's the single bounce, double bounce phenomenon, right? There's little drips, drips of water hanging in the sky, and the sun's banging off those and coming into your eye. And the bright one is a single bounce, and the double one's a double bounce. And when it bounces twice, it reverses twice. It's just like when you look in a corner mirror and you see a double reflection, it's the real you. you know. When we look in a a mirror, we're always seeing ourselves sideways from how everybody else sees us. So we see a picture of ourselves and we say, wow, that's weird, I don't look like that, right? But if you reverse it, that's your mirror image and that's what you're used to seeing when you look in a mirror, okay? Here's a rainbow on the Concordia campus during a soccer game everyone saw this breathtaking rainbow behind the stadium. And my friend Mike, he had his phone out and he got a beautiful image of it going right from goalpost to goalpost, you see that? It's the touchdown rainbow. And I, I sometimes, you, you know it's rainbow time when you have one of those summer showers and then suddenly the sun comes out right, right after the shower's gone. If that ever happens to you, don't think, oh wow, the sun came out fast, think, it's rainbow time. Go outside, put your back to the sun, see if you can see a rainbow. So that happened a couple years ago, and I, I was on the Concordia campus waiting for this rainbow to form, and then it formed. And I said, oh, this is great. I'm gonna set it right up with Weller Hall, our administration building, and I got a pretty nice shot with a double, and I kind of artistically arranged it, so I went right into the shoulder of the tower. you know? Okay, so let's talk about those colors. So here is a, an actual photographic image where I don't know how this guy did it. The photographer, you can see his name there. Dick Locke, he got this really wide spectrum photo where you can kind of see the, the Roy G. Biv, right? And oh, we could talk about R-O-Y-G-B-I-V. That's what we memorize because it, it's a nice acronym. Can you see red? Can you see orange? Can you see yellow? Can you see green? kind of looks blue-greenish, doesn't it? It's not a very greeny green. Can you see blue? Can you see indigo? Can you see violet? Is, I see a blue and a violet, I don't know if I see an indigo. I've looked at a lot of rainbows, I don't know. It's, it's Isaac Newton's fault. His first great scientific paper was on the colors of the rainbow. And prior to Newton, nobody had identified orange and indigo in the spectrum of the rainbow. But Isaac Newton did, and so there have been seven colors since his paper, right? So it's a little bit arbitrary because how many colors are there in a rainbow? We know that you can categorize colors by different wavelengths of light, yes? How many different numbers are there within that range of numbers? Numbers are infinitely divisible, right? So you could take an infinitely thin slice of rainbow, and that is one discrete color. We call that a monochromatic color. So a rainbow is made up of a bunch of sideways little pencil-thin stripes, all of which are monochromatic. And we generally don't see monochromatic colors in everyday life. What we see is polychromatic colors. So when you say, oh, this shirt is green, does this correspond to a single wavelength of light that you can find in the rainbow? No, generally this is a band of colors that all combine to give you this impression of green. Okay, you see how we're, we're learning about what we're seeing from science here? And then there's some colors that we call extra spectral. And I made that an extra spectral color. It's the best example. You know what that color is, the third box? I picked the crayon from my Apple computer picker. It's magenta. Magenta is a combination of red and blue mixed together. So there's both red and blue wavelengths of light coming to your eye, giving you that impression, okay? I see some magenta shirts out there. Uh, a lot of times people misidentify magenta as purple or violet. No, purple or violet is more monochromatic. Uh, extra spectral is a mix, and it's nowhere in the rainbow. There's no slice of rainbow that's magenta, right? Isn't that cool? It's kind of fun to know. All right, so there is a place, though, in everyday life where we do see uh, monochromes. Let me show you here -- is a red laser light. And that's the old, familiar, boring red laser light that we all see. If you put your eye into the, the supermarket checkout, you can get dazzled by the red laser. Have you ever tried that? Anybody? Me too. I've tried that. Okay. Yeah, it's really bright. Uh, it won't hurt your eyes, though. It's low energy. Now, so this is a monochrome, 670 nanometers. So this corresponds to one infinitely thin slice of rainbow. That's, that's per- it's not perfect because there's this spectral broadening that takes place because of quantum physics. But it's really close to 670 nanometer monochromatic light. So when you see a laser color, isn't it a little more brilliant and dazzling? Partially just due to the brightness, but also because that is the one time we see monochromes, is when we see laser light. So that's 670, okay? Monochromatic green, this is a nice powerful green, and this is in the max sensitivity part of our eyeballs. Our retinas are really good at receiving the energy of green light. It's closer to this color of the sun where our eye sensitivity peaks, okay? And that's 535 nanometer monochromatic light. And very, very pure, very brilliant, very beautiful, right? Okay, here's my third and last color. And it's dimmer, but that's 405 nanometer violet light. Okay, and that is very beautiful too. Definitely not magenta, (laughs) because that has red in it too, right? But somewhere over on the purple side of the rainbow, way over here. That's this thin, thin slice. All right? So so just by systematically applying knowledge, we can enhance our knowledge of what we're looking at when we see a rainbow, when we see colors. That's what science does. It's kind of glorious, right? All right. But there's more. Let's, let's look at some color illusions, because that's kind of cool, too. When we look at colors... Did you ever have that, you know, seventh grade philosophy conversation with your friends where you said, I wonder if when you look at red, the thing that is happening in your brain is the same as the red for me? Do we both see the same red? Right? It's kind of a basic question of perception. All right, so here's here's one of those color illusions you, you can see. You can Google color illusions and you get all kinds of them. So what's the illusion here? We focus on the two red Crosses are plus signs. Each are made with, with five squares of red. There's one on the left and one on the right, okay? So those two different red crosses, how do they appear? One on the left is a darker red and the one on the light is a, a little lighter red, yes? And of course, the illusion is that no, those are actually exactly the same color of red. But now as we look at them together, some people perceive it more strongly, some people perceive it less, because it kind of depends on your brain. But in general, we see two different reds, left and right. Do you see why? What makes the one on the left look, look darker? Your eye is comparing it to the yellow, which by comparison is very bright and dazzling, and the red seems darker and dimmer compared to the yellow, but wait. On the right-handed cross, the reds are also next to yellow, aren't they? It's just sideways instead of up and down. That's the real weird part about this illusion, is our eyes seem to make comparisons in the vertical more readily than in the horizontal. Isn't that strange? So look, I turned it sideways. Does that make the illusion less intense for you? Because now it's the same image, but we've rotated it, or do you start to see the one on the bottom being darker because I turned it sideways? You see what I mean? And we all kind of see different things. Here, here's the best simultaneous contrast illusion I've ever seen. This is just amazing. Let me come down here. Okay, this is hard to believe, but you see this color, this green, kind of a sickly green. You see this color here, it's kind of a sickly turquoise. This turquoise, this green are exactly the same color. They're exactly the same color. That's hard to believe, right? Okay, let me go closer. Now we're focusing. Here's the sickly green, here's the sickly blue. Those are exactly the same color. Is the illusion as good now? Okay, that's a really good illusion because we have a lot of context. We have less context. Do they look alike now? They still don't look alike. They're closer. Okay, now I'm going to take a slice of this right here. I'm going to slide it over here. All I did, all I did was slice it and move it over. Does that help? Do they look the same now? Almost, right? Is that cool? Okay, that, that, is, some, that is just how color works, you guys. We do a lot of interpreting in our brains. And here we're 400 people experiencing the same illusion. It's all built into our brains by God. This is one of the laws of color perception, right? This is one of the patterns that we find in science. So the, the, the data is glorious, and this law is glorious. And we can, we can take that with us and say, wow, we learned something cool in science class today. But we as Christians can say, ah, that's a Psalm 19 moment. That's the heavens, the physical world declaring God, God's glory through systematic study in science, okay? Am I convincing you? Are we getting there, Jesse? Okay, Jesse's nodding. All right, another another color illusion. You guys have seen after image illusions before. So here's the famous American flag. So what we wanna do is stare at the center of this flag. We're staring at the center. Do not move your eyes. I want you to fix your gaze right at the center of the flag. And we are getting our retinas tired because they're receiving stimulation. And that blue-green, that cyan color are all the colors except red, and the yellow field and the stars are all the colors except blue. So when I make it a white screen, stare, do not move your eyes, there is the red, white, and blue American flag. And look at this. We can blink back and forth. And the thing is, your red retinal receptors aren't as tired, so Since they're not tired, when it's just being stimulated by white, there's some leftover residue from that red. Okay, Isn't that cool? All right, ready for another one? All right, another good after image illusion. Follow my instructions. This is an animated GIF, and it's going to give us a countdown on our after image stimulator. Stare at the dot. Stare at the dot. Fix your eyes on the dot. And now it's going to change to a color picture of the entrance to the Apple Store in Cupertino, California. And you saw the green trees and the red brick, right? OK, now, now follow my instructions again. Stare at the dot, stare at the dot. And when it changes, you will see color. And then wiggle your eyes, wiggle your eyes. There was no color. There was no color there. And when we wiggle our eyes, we destroy the illusion. And we see it's really just a black and white scene that appears in color. Wiggle your eyes. That is data, my friends. We are observing the world with our senses like scientists do. And we are dazzled by the glory of data. Okay? One more. This one is beautiful. Stare at the dot. And it's going to give us a stimulation now for 10 seconds. We stare at the dot. And it's just like the previous one. It's going to go black and white and look very colorful. And there is the color. I'm a physics teacher. I've been teaching 30 years. I'm cherry picking some really exciting illusions I thought you'd find interesting and enjoyable and trying to see how it it kind of glorifies God. Let me go to a harder cell, okay? Let's talk about glorious laws. And let me pick the three laws of motion from Sir Isaac Newton. 1677, my friends, this is the first page of the book of, of the most important book in scientific history, The Mathematical Principles of Motion, uh, commonly known as the Principia, because that's the Latin word from the title. Okay, and on the first page of the Principia, he writes down his three laws in Latin. And, and many, most of us have seen this before in a science class. And I teach these every year, every year, at least once, sometimes three times, and I try so hard to get my students to care about this, right? Because <laughs> it's like, isn't this obvious? The first law of motion, oh yeah, uh, every object will continue in a state of rest or uniform vo- velocity unless it acts upon by an external force, oh, I'm falling asleep now, right? Uh, the second law, uh, commonly written as F equals ma as an equation, right? When you push something, it accelerates. That's, that's not what people think about the world. As a physics teacher, I get all excited and say, you think when you push something, it it achieves a constant velocity, but no, it accelerates. And I'm waving my hands around trying to get them to care. Right? The third law, uh, commonly uh, stated as a misnomer, the action-reaction law: for every action, there's an equal opposite reaction. What is an action? What are what units are action measured in? Did you ever learn that in physics? No. That there is measurable. Uh, quantity called action, but it's, it's not as simple as force. For every force, when things push on each other, when one pushes on one side, the other pushes back just as hard. So these are the three laws of motion. Now, uh, you know, this is a big part of my, my vocation as a science teacher, is trying to get students to care about this, trying to get them to think in a Newtonian way. That's what you do when you take physics classes. All right, let me, let me show you a way that these laws can kind of reveal order and we can see the patterns in God's creation by looking at a series of moving scenes, commonly known as fail videos, okay? Because when you know Newton's laws and you look at fail videos through the lens of Newton's laws, much can be revealed, right? And it's glorious because here's the, old, here's the guy that forgot to strap down the car and so the truck pulled away and the car stayed put. Because why? An object at rest tends to stay at rest unless acted upon by an external force. Looks like they didn't even put it in park, right? (laughs) Not very smart. But looking through the lens of Newton's laws, order is revealed, okay? And have you seen these types of videos? So what do you see when you look at this as a physicist? When he leaves the merry-go-round, he continues traveling in a straight line, right? Tangent to his motion... This is literally going off on a tangent, (laughs) right? You see how he flies straight sideways, whoa, (laughs) okay? Now, I think that makes funny videos more fun when you can understand why they happen, right? That's part of what science does to reveal God's order, okay? Here's a dad. Dad did not study physics in school. He needed to know the first law of motion because when he stops the little cart, baby does not stop. All right? Okay? This guy guy really needed to know Newton's first law. Yeah, he steps out and sideways face plant because the poor guy, he just thought he could step onto the platform and there he is, but no. He was traveling sideways at a substantial velocity. And he should have known if he had studied his physics that you can't do that. At the very least, he should have jumped out, he should have turned to the right and jumped out sideways and tried to run, right? (laughs) Yes, that may have have done the trick. Okay, so here's the lady walking her dog. I I use this one to illustrate the second law of force causing an acceleration, right? This is F equals ma. (laughs) F equals ma. (laughs) Okay, F equals ma has a sound effect built into it. All right, here's, here's classic uh, third law demonstrations, right? Why do, the, why do the guns recoil? We got the guy uh, cracking his eye socket with the scope of the rifle. We got the old dude uh, moving backwards because what's going, we're applying a force to make the bullet go to the right, yes? And so that applies a force onto the gun itself, which is the recoil force. Right, if you know the third law, you can avoid problems like this. Okay, here is a non-fail. I love this one as a a demonstration of the conservation of momentum because both body and ball are moving to the right, but the force applied makes the body come to rest. He cancels his motion by applying a force onto his body that's to the left. So what does the ball do? Watch, The, the ball has to take off, right? So the ball takes off to the right while the force slows the guy down so he can come to rest. And that is a very, very clever trick, okay? So this, this engages us because it's funny. It's data. We're studying the world. We're seeing order. We can see God's glory and how these obey predictable laws that God made. Amazing. Okay, so here's, here's my attempt at a glorious theory, um, it's, it's tough to take on a full real scientific theory and show you all the glory that we can find in the theory of relativity or quantum mechanics. I thought about doing some of that, but it's such a big subject. I wanted to make things a little smaller. So what I wanna look at, I told you there'd be some vector calculus, okay? So here we go. We have four vector calculus equations. Uh, I teach our, our top level, uh, electricity and magnetism course at Concordia, and we spend a substantial portion of our semester learning how to use these equations because they are expressed at a high level of mathematics, and, and they are a dazzling, dazzling accomplishment, okay? Uh, let me show you a quote from Richard Feynman, uh, the, the famous Nobel Prize winning physicist from the 20th century. He said, from a long view of history of mankind, seen from say 10,000 years from now, There can be little doubt that the most significant event of the 19th century will be judged as Maxwell's discovery of the laws of electrodynamics. The American Civil War will pale into provincial insignificance in comparison with this important scientific event of the same decade, okay? Yeah, there was a a civil war in America, but that's when Maxwell wrote his equations down, right? These are a big deal and amazing accomplishment of of the intellect. He was following in the footsteps of Michael Faraday, the great experimentalist, who messed around with with electrical gadgets and tried to discover what patterns there were to see, the laws of electrodynamics. But Faraday was not a mathematician. And it came to Maxwell to take Faraday's experiments with utmost seriousness, because he was somewhat ignored by the establishment who, who were stuck in the days of Newton. But along comes Maxwell And all these equations do is they summarize how electricity and magnetism behaves in the laboratory, but it behaves in this very complicated way that is expressed perfectly with the language of vector calculus. And vector calculus was basically invented to do this, okay? That's another part of the glorious nature of God's creation is the profound connection that we find between mathematics and the physical world. Because math is something that exists just in our heads. It is a system of pure logic. How can it be that it applies so well to uh, the, the physical world? Okay, so Maxwell wrote his equations down and he said, hey, you know these equations? Uh, they yield a differential equation that's a wave equation. So there's this mathematical entity that behaves like a wave. It has periodic motion associated with it. And it has components of electric field strength and magnetic field strength that are crossed with each other and propagate through space. And by taking the the physical constants that were measured in the laboratory and using those as a starting point to calculate the velocity of this hypothetical mathematical wave, we calculate it to be three times 10 to the eight meters per second, which is the speed of light. So by writing the equations down in this mathematic language, and this, my friends, it's one of the magnum opus accomplishments of of science, it predicted the, the speed of light without having to measure it. And it agreed with what we were measuring at that time, because gradually over the years, we got better and better at measuring this really, really, really fast speed. So that is such a glorious achievement of theory, okay? And now I'm I'm deliberately trying to take you to a deeper level right and get a little more nerdy because it's 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 beauty and its glory all the way down to the utmost reaches of theoretical science. And for this reason, for years and years you've been able to buy a t-shirt that says this. And God said, and there's Maxwell's equations right? And then there was lights, right? Okay, so that t-shirt, I remember being able to buy it in the 80s at least, right? I, I, I don't have one. At the, I have a Maxwell's Equations without the God part, but I, I will get one, I promise. Um, let, me, let me use that to pivot just to the question of, okay, here we are. We are at the, the National Youth Gathering. We are, we are here to, you know, achieve spiritual growth and, and improve our relationship with God and learn from his Bible. What about the fact that science is used as kind of an atheistic weapon, right? Isn't there this secular strain of science where some of us are afraid to go to, into, into a public science classroom because it's, it's a place where the teachers are not allowed to saw, share a Psalm 19 perspective in any way because that's illegal. And, and they might want to use it as a weapon to, to hurt your faith, right? So, you know, you see memes like this. Atheists, in science we trust, right? Because they see that as the alternative to faith. Is science an alternative to faith? How can we, how can we as Christians, use it as a way to get closer to God when other people think that it's a way that distances us from God? What they're doing is they're adopting a certain philosophy called metaphysical naturalism, where there is no, nothing beyond what we can observe with our senses. But the problem is that then, if that's all there is, and there is no transcendent part to the physical world, then that is the ultimate unit of existence. And so that kind of is what transcendence becomes, right? And so science becomes your god. Sometimes that's referred to as scientism. And that's not something that you need to fear or feel like you have to do. Because as Christians, we are blessed with the freedom and the ability to be expanded beyond that narrow perspective, right? Here's another one, atheism, because science is wonderful enough, right? Or you think of Richard Dawkins, who's uh, perhaps the most famous of what, what are referred to as the new atheists, who aren't just You know, atheists used to just be, yeah, leave me alone, I'm atheist, but now they've become very activist. Faith can be very dangerous, and deliberately to implant it into the vulnerable mind of an innocent child is a grievous wrong, said Dawkins, Right? Or this, I think this one's kind of preposterous. If you don't understand how something works, never mind. Just give up and say God did it. You don't know how the nerve impulse works? Good. You don't understand how memories are laid down in the brain? Excellent. Is photosynthesis a baffling complex process? Wonderful. Please don't go to work on the problem. Just give up and appeal to God. It's a very crude caricature of you know the work of many many scientists who are Christians and who do live out their faith through their vocation of science. Um, all right, so how do, we, how do we respond to that? That, my friends, is the purpose of my talk today, okay? I'm, I'm trying to give you an alternate perspective so that whether you're in a Christian classroom or a secular classroom, you know that you are, you are being experienced, you are experiencing the glory of God through his natural world, just like Psalm 19 says. All right, one last example. Here we go. I wanna look at the morning star real quick and show back to the night sky, right? Back to the heavens themselves because the morning star is this beautiful biblical symbol. And we have the hymn, How Lovely Shines the Morning Star, right? You all know that tune. And in Revelation, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star, okay? And of course, it's a, we could go a lot deeper on the references to Satan and so forth. All right, but let's look at the order in the morning star. Because there's this this fellow, I can't read that, what is it, Larry Genki? he, I was on an astronomy website last spring, and he did analysis of the motion of Venus as a morning star that extends from November 2018 through May of 2019, so just now. Venus was a morning star, and we're going to look at a picture of the sky 30 minutes before sunrise, and look at how Venus moved through the sky. So here's an animation, and you see the dates changing on the bottom. Each of these were taken on successive nights, 30 minutes before sunrise. And Venus is the bright moving star that's making this loop, right? It starts off here, and it goes high in the sky, and then it comes back down, and we see Jupiter and Saturn move by, and we see Mercury make a little peak, and we're gonna strip away the trees, so that we can see it better and look at the animation again we also see the sun just wobbling back and forth in its motion we can see mercury moving around in this funny way below the horizon right and we can see here's jupiter here's saturn right and this is really cool because in in pre you know back in the ancient days in the ancient days everyone knew the planets were special because this is looking night to night to night to night. They move against the background of scars. So the stars move seasonally, and maybe you can see they kind of drift just sideways a little bit each night. But the planets wander, and the the word planet means wanderer in Greek, okay? That's where we got the name. So now let's explain what we're seeing. Are you ready? Because we're gonna, oh, not yet, sorry. (laughs) Next one's the explanation. This just puts traces on it, and this just adds to the beauty right? So we're we're taking in the wonder of God's creation with our senses as we see the little loops that Venus and Mercury make through the sky. And now here's the explanatory extra. We're superimposing the track of the orbits of these two planets that are inferior to Earth inside us on the sun. And so the trace in the sky is due to them moving through their orbits while we move through our orbit. And just seeing that explained is kind of dazzling. It's like, wow, we can do that? That's a pretty cool computer animation. And here it is, kind of hidden by the horizon again. But that's why you see Venus do that, okay? Now, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you don't like that. Maybe you just would rather enjoy the motion without all that extra stuff tacked on. But I think as a scientist, I really appreciate that. I like to go deeper and find out the reasons for things. And if you have that scientific attitude, I think rather than kind of messing up your experience of the glory of the creation, I think it can actually enhance it, all right? Pretty cool. Back to science as a cultural phenomenon. And maybe many of you are familiar familiar with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's He's a celebrity astrophysicist, popularizer of science. And he said this, I look up at the night sky and I know that, yes, we are part of this universe. We are in this universe. Perhaps more important than both of those facts is that the universe is in us. When I reflect on that fact, I look up. Many people feel small because they're small and the universe is big, but I feel big because my atoms came from those stars. Okay, so he uses this kind of quasi-mystical language in spite of the fact that Neil deGrasse Tyson is a naturalist. He He is a philosophical atheist. And he says a lot of things that are pretty hostile to, to religion and Christianity in particular. I, I think that the way I, I find my way through this world and this scientific culture is that I like to take the good that comes from someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson because what he's expressing here is a secular wonder, an awe and a wonder that he thinks is only residing inside the neurons of his brains. But I, I feel a little bit sorry for him Because I think that that awe and wonder is even more dazzling for us because we have the blessing of a faith in a creator God, and we are able to take it to the next step and not just say, well, yeah, this is a pretty cool thought, Neil deGrasse Tyson, that's pretty dazzling. But we can go the farther step and say, ah, but we know who made it, and we can see that this helps us glorify God, and it turns our our scientific investigations into an act of worship.